This is episode 18 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Brock Rogerson on the show and Brock is specifically interesting because he's not even 40 yet. He's already acquired 160 units and he lives on the opposite side of the continent from the vast majority of his portfolio. So what we're going to be learning from Brock today is how you go from being a financial planner working in a bank selling stocks and bonds to being a guy that's amassed eight to nine million dollars of real estate in one city alone and then has multiple other cities he's investing in as well. Brock is a wealth of knowledge. He's been a high performer as long as I've known him and I've been fortunate enough to uh, have known him for quite some time. I actually met him back in probably 2011 when I saw him buying properties like crazy and wondering who the heck is this guy and how's he doing it. Today, Brock gets into his philosophy and it's great to have this different perspective. Somebody that came from the financial planning world, somebody somebody that's been coached to sell stocks and bonds who saw the light and realize that real estate's where it's at. One of the things that's quite unique about Brock's approach is that he invests into markets that a lot of people are afraid of. He invests into markets that have no appreciation, no population growth, and high vacancy rates, and that's where he likes to be. That's his bread and butter, and he's gonna tell us all about it. Before we get into it, I wanna shout out to everyone who came out to the Greater Hamilton REI meetup on Wednesday. It was crazy, we had like 30 people, it was our first meetup, and it was really just a mastermind full of people trying to bring each other up and help each other grow each other's portfolios. So that was fantastic, looking forward to doing more of them. So make sure you hit me up if you wanna be included on the next one and you're in the Greater Hamilton area and or you're willing to travel to that area to be a part of the meetup. Before we go any further, I'm asking a special favor and that's to pause this right now and go review this podcast so that more people can find it. I'd really, really appreciate it no matter what platform you're on. If you could just take a moment to review the podcast and maybe share it with a friend, share it with somebody that you think could benefit from listening to this. So without further ado, here is episode 18 with Brock Rogerson. Brock, how are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I uh, I know we haven't spoken in probably a few years, a little Facebook here and there, but uh, you were one of the guys that I met when I first got interested in real estate investing. I probably only had one property at that time. And then I was helping you out with a mortgage and you come to me and I, I don't want to disclose the number, but it was a lot of properties that you were working with. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, how the heck is this guy doing it? And, uh, well, if you wouldn't mind, maybe if, uh, if you could kind of give me the update, what are you up to? How'd you get started in all of this? I know you own several units, maybe give us some context and, and tell us your story. Sure. You bet. So I'm, uh, I'll start with what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm actually living part-time in the States and still back in Calgary with my family down here in California. And, uh, I'm buying properties out East in New Brunswick. Uh, mostly New Brunswick, uh, looking at a, a project in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan as well. Um, it's been about nine year cycle to get to this point. And when I first started, I was at the bank. I dealt with our private wealth group, trying to convince clients to invest in our balanced portfolios rather than real estate. And uh, once they, uh, or I guess it was a rich dad, poor dad course that came through. 
And when it came through, I decided I'd go and learn more about it so I could talk my clients out of investing in real estate. But after I attended the course, I thought, wow, this is actually pretty good. And then I started buying real estate. And uh, fast forward, uh, I'm not sure the exact number right now, but it's, I think, about 160 or so. 160 doors? Uh, yeah, 160 doors. A lot of them were single family and, and duplexes when I started. So there's probably still, I don't know, 30 or so single family or duplexes. And then uh, I've been getting more into multifamily and one industrial in the last uh, couple of years here. Wow. So you've been killing it. So, so to give it context, you were working at the bank uh, back in Canada out of Calgary as an investment advisor? Yeah, essentially as a financial planner. Okay. Um, and I, as clients came into new funds to the bank, I positioned them with different, uh, either stockbrokers or other financial planners, private investment council, different divisions of the bank. And I'd find what suits them best for, for their funds. Okay. And, uh, now you're in, in the States, but so you, you transition, give me a time frame. So you started, you started investing, investment advising, well, financial planning, uh, yeah. approximately when? 16 years, 17 years ago now. Okay. Yeah. And got the um, real estate bug somewhere. Nine years. Nine years yeah, ago. Nine years ago. I think the first purchase was June 2010. June 2000. No, June 2009. It was during the sort of the recession. Okay. So good time to buy at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when did you leave your job? Uh, officially, uh, May 31st last year. Okay. I resigned, um, but we had a, a son, uh, my son Bryant, and so I took a paternity leave. So I've been gone from the bank for for two years. Okay, but officially for a few months. Yeah. How how did they feel about what you were doing? Being that you're obviously in, investing in the competition. Yeah, um, you know what? I, they liked it. I had tremendous success at my job at the bank because I was able to speak to real estate rather than just discount it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think they encouraged it and I don't view it as, as competition. It was very much complimentary. Uh, and I think that's often um, proposed as sort of a false uh, decision between one or the other. And, and the fact of that there's pros and cons to real estate, stocks, bonds, um, and most people can't put all their funds in real estate because they need liquidity. Uh, it would be the main reason. And so, so they didn't mind it. I mean, I was able to, when I sat down with clients, look at their entire uh, financial picture and give them advice based on that. And uh, most of them were short on real estate. I mean, they'd only have their primary residence. Okay. Um, so, but, but it worked actually, it was quite good. Okay. That's, uh, that's awesome. And I think that's true because because uh, there is a place for a stock portfolio. I, I think there is a place. I know that some people who invest in indexes can get, yeah, I don't know if you read that Tony Robbins book, the, uh, what was it? Unshakable. I didn't know. Yeah. He was just basically preaching how after speaking with Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio and, and whoever else that basically index funds are, are where it's at. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, more or less saying that, uh, that you could average around 11%. So as a passive hands off, I mean, you and I both know real estate, you can make way more. Yeah. You got to get your hands dirty sometimes. Yeah. Why don't you walk me through your vision in real estate investing, what you do and, and you know, what it means to you, what you're looking for. 
Sure. So I've always been a buy and hold uh, investor. Um, one of the reasons I did not like real estate for so many years, and I was a stock and, and bond and, and commodity person, was because in the Calgary market, the rental numbers and the income approach has not really made a ton of sense. Um, and I felt that I could do better in, in stocks and commodities. Um, so what changed when I went to through the courses and, and that is I realized that in other markets, the numbers are very attractive from an income approach and the system is set up um, where you can use leverage and, and where it's much more favorable. There's no specifically, there's no margin calls in real estate investing, okay. uh, unless you start missing payments. But, uh, if the value of the property drops below the mortgage, um, they don't automatically force you to sell that day, which with a stock they would. And that to me allows you to leverage aggressively, uh, as long as the income is there. So my investment philosophy involves going to areas that have ridiculously strong income. And so that no matter what happens, whether it's interest rates rising or vacancy rates spiking um, or, or renovations or, uh, you know, even I had a sewer backup and I've got a property out of line for a while here. Um, but it, it's still strong enough from an income approach that the portfolio can handle the income. And as long as that's the case, I'm comfortable taking leverage and using the system um, to, to use other people's money, essentially. And that's the biggest difference. And that's what I try and do. Awesome. And, and I know you're, so you're, you've named a couple of places. I know you were investing in, I think you had some stuff in Toronto originally, but. I had, you know what, I, it's funny. I had two properties. I still have them in Mississauga, um, two condos. And when I bought them, so everything I just said about income, um, they had the worst numbers of any property I've ever bought. And as it turns out, they're they're probably one of the best because the appreciation, you know, they're up 150% or something in the eight years that I've owned them. Um, So it's funny how you can do everything right. And in a good market, it probably doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's going to make money. I'm more concerned about the down markets. And I know that when that happens because of the rest of my portfolio, not those Toronto ones that I can weather the storm from an income approach. I love that because I've been, t- I've been telling people that too. They're like, Oh, should I invest in Toronto? I'm like, well, you have to think about it in terms of your overall portfolio is investing in negative cash flow ever a good idea. I, I would say as a starting point, no. But if, if you've already got cash flow and you want to add some appreciation to your portfolio, that's a market where you can probably gain more on the property value going up than you ever would on the cash flow. Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, and, and I totally agree with, with what you just said. I still stick to, I'm investing in stuff that I know today. I don't want to invest on any speculation tomorrow. So that would include not just appreciation, but whether it's, um, government projects, you know, a new hospital or a mass transit, uh, whatever it may be that's going through a a pipeline, et cetera. I don't care. I hope that it happens clearly. Um, but if it doesn't, I know that the returns are strong enough from an income approach. I mean, that's really how I differentiate between what I'm, what I'm looking at is that if nothing changed, if we just stayed right where we were, um, is the returns enough to satisfy me? And if it is, then I'm ready to go. That's a, that's a great philosophy. Uh, when, when are you satisfied when somebody announces new transit? At what point are you saying, okay, I believe this? Is it when it's all set up and running daily? Or is it 
You know what? I do my best to uh, not even bring that into the equation. Um, of course, when, when it's all done, it's, it's great, but then the prices have moved as well. And um, so at varying degrees, you can get in earlier and you might have more upside, but you have more risk as well. And by the time it's all done, it's probably worked into the market. So I really just try and psychologically not bring that in as a consideration. Um, when I'm working with partners, they tend to get excited you know, both, well, both excited and depressed when things happen or don't happen. Um, and it doesn't change things. So a good example would be Energy East um, for St. John. So the refinery is there and there was talk of a second refinery and everyone's excited and it seemed like a no-brainer. And some of my partners got very excited, wanted to invest more. Uh, obviously, it didn't go through um, but at the end, the income is still there. So we don't care. I mean, if it did go through, that would have been a, like a lottery ticket. Um, but the, the key is to just not bring it into, uh, to the equation and make good investment decisions without needing to rely on that appreciation, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, I always say like you should have, and this is from pure me making stupid mistakes, which I could fill you in on an hour worth of, of those, but uh, a plan A, B, and C, right? So your plan A is everything goes rosy, but what if that doesn't happen? What's your plan B? And if you're going into say Toronto or like Manhattan or San Francisco, where the numbers are insane, you're not going to cash flow. Uh, if you buy into those markets and they don't go up in value, you don't have a plan B. What are you going to do? Sell it and lose? No, that's not a good plan B. So if, if you can make things fit into the plan A, B, and C, like where you have three viable options as exit strategies, if you needed, uh, I, I think that generally speaking, you'll be in a safe position. Nothing's guaranteed, but yeah. definitely makes more sense. So what, uh, well, first off, have you had markets where you bought and you saw your value go down? Yes, absolutely. Are you in a, are you in that situation now or is that uh, well yeah and i'm still buying there uh st john would be the the worst um i bought there i started in 2010 or 11 and a lot of the property values i had one project that um you know there's external factors as well um but basically it started to come back now but the value is still below my mortgage um and i've held it for eight years so it was a disaster that being the case it still cash flows and um, I'm not in a rush to sell it. So, you know, I'll carry it and eventually it'll, it will come back. But um, if, if I was relying on appreciation or I needed the capital in five years, that would have been, uh, it would have been disastrous. Um, so it does happen. I actually think St. John is, is attractive because the numbers are so low. And what made those ones not work has actually made the new ones start to work even better as that market comes back to a more normal uh, mm -hmm. you know, rent level and, and property value. Okay. Yeah. So for our friends in the States and, and who aren't familiar with St. John, just on the East coast of Canada, mm -hmm. uh, fairly cold market. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, uh, what's going on out there that, that gives you uh, confidence in that market that the rental demand will stay there? I'm in St. John, New Brunswick. What's going on in St. John? Nothing. nothing. And that's why I'm investing there. There is nothing 
happening. And that's my whole point. Um, yes, there people hope that stuff happens. Um, there's potential that uh, Energy East is now going to be a, a gas pipeline. Um, there is a uh, Irving's building their new headquarters, which is an 11 building tower downtown, which is a big deal for St. John. Um, you know, there's cruise ships that come in in the summer, um, but I, they're not really expanding the number of ships that come in. Um, they're the second refinery Irving's bought the land, but they haven't, uh, they're not moving forward and probably will not. Um, so there is, there is not a whole bunch going. Um, what's good is that it's coming from a really weak standpoint where vacancies were above 10, um, and rents had dropped to abnormally low levels. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's strengthening. So it's more the direction um than the absolute level so one of my pet peeves is when people talk about investing in an area because the vacancy is one percent i view that as terrible because the only direction it could go most likely would be higher and if i'm paying up um to to buy those properties with a high price because the vacancy is low and the income is higher uh in the future at some point and it doesn't really matter when but at some point the vacancy won't be one percent and then I'm losing income. So I would rather buy a place. Uh, two years ago, the vacancy was 8.4, and now it's uh, 3.7. And uh, 3.7 isn't you know, the strongest, but the direction is improving, and that's kind of what matters. Now, do you ever fear that somebody might, well, people in general might start leaving the area? Like, are you looking at population growth or shrinkage I, all the time? You know, I do because everyone who invests in real estate does, but I'll give you an example why that is not as important in this situation. Okay. Um, St. John, the population and the census up to 2016 over um, the last 10 years is actually flat. Um, the last five years, it went down a percent and the five years before that, it went up 1%. So it's nothing. People are moving and demographics are terrible. There's too many uh, elderly or not enough younger people. So everything that people look for, it does not have. And uh, why that doesn't matter in this particular case is because the vacancy has gone from 8.4 to 3.7. So the natural question would be, how do you have the vacancy rate drop by more than 4% without population? And there's two, I think people forget, there's two sides of the equation. There's supply and demand. And the demand isn't there. That hasn't changed. It's just steady and probably will be for a long time. Um, but the supply is shrinking. You have old buildings and lack of investment. And because of that, the city has actually condemned a bunch of them. Some of them just naturally, um, as time goes on, expire or burn. <laughs> and um, and so you, you've seen a shrinking of the supply. And because of that, um, you know, the vacancy rate has dropped with zero population growth, the vacancy has dropped nearly 5%. So I think people are missing the boat when they focus on the population change. Um, and then further, if you look on more of a micro level, you actually do have a population increase in uptown St. John of 15% in the last five years. And so what's happening is as these older properties require more capital expenditures and some of the owners have had financial difficulties and abandon them um the reinvestment has been uptown st john and so they've redeveloped some of these old historic beautiful buildings sandstone uh, buildings multifamily, etc and as they've rebuilt them um, the population has moved 
to to uptown. So you actually have a shrinking of population in all areas outside of uptown and an increase um, in, in uptown St. John. So within the city, there's different areas that are that are doing well. The city as a whole is just flat. It's just people moving around, but there's still lots of opportunity that's in there. And if down the road, there was, for some reason, population growth, um, which could come from immigration or could come from some other economic projects. That would be great, but that's the lottery, and I don't. Uh, I try not to bring that into the equation. Okay, so you're so basically your experience there with Uptown is that even in a market that's flat, you can still stand out and maybe even get higher rents. Is yeah. that is that possible there? Do you think? Yeah, rents are. Uh, in the last two years have gone up significantly. I think technically by CMHC reports, uh, you know, they might be up, I don't know, 5% or 6%, but the reality is a lot of them uh, in some of the properties that have been owned by people who have had them for a long time that went through the vacancies in 2013 and 14, um, they're scared to raise their rents. Mm-hmm. And because they don't want the vacancies again, so they're below what the market is. So a lot of the properties that I'm buying, you don't even have to fix up. You can actually just buy and increase the rents to the average market rent and have a significant increase of 10 to 20 percent uh, in the value of the building. Do you have issues with tenant rules out there or is it fairly flexible? One of the most friendly that I've operated in. I'm in five provinces in in Canada and uh, one state in in the States. Um, And there is no rent control. Um, For the most part, people understand when you're raising rents. They're excited and welcoming of people who are willing to invest in in their province and uh, create jobs through whether they're construction jobs or, uh, you know, just increasing the the quality of the housing stock because these buildings do need some work. And uh, if no one does it, they just literally, they see it around the city. They literally just expire and are not livable. So without the investors, um, you know, that quality of of living uh, and resident standards kind of deteriorates. Interesting. What uh, what kind of numbers are attractive to you when you're looking at when you're looking at a market in sure. New Brunswick when you looked at St. John? Yeah. So St. John specifically. So normally I have the one percent rule. So the the monthly rent should be one percent of your purchase price. But in St. John, that rule is two percent. Okay. So um, I typically will not look at a property unless the rent is at least two percent. Uh, the monthly rent is 2% of the purchase price. And that is achievable in St. John. In Winnipeg, I still have the 1% rule. Um, in Moose Jaw, uh, it's, it's more than the 1% rule. But, um, you know, St. John's kind of a special, uh, a special place where you can still achieve extremely high um, rent to, to purchase price. So a hypothetical then 2% rule would mean that you're getting $2,000 a month on a $100,000 property. Absolutely. Is like, have you bought a $100,000 property that gave you 2000? Oh, they're all over the place. Every day. (laughs) You don't, well, I bought one last Friday. So today's Tuesday. So it wasn't today, but two days ago I bought a triplex for 40,000. 
Um, and it needs about 30,000 of work on the inside. There is electrical, there's knob and tube that needs to be replaced, which is a third of the budget for the repairs. But all in, let's call it 75,000 for a triplex, and they'll rent for 800. Um, this depends on utilities included or not. So call it 700 um, if tenants are paying utilities, and maybe 900 if you're paying. So even at 700, that's 2,100. Uh, a month and all in i'll be in for seventy five thousand. You know? so you'll be in for seventy five thousand. what will your cash flow look like on something like that uh it's about 800 a month so 800 a month yeah and that's pretty conservative i've got uh you know all my projects i've got large uh allowances for various costs larger than what you typically see um, so it might be higher than that, but I'm comfortable with, uh, with 800. I like that approach anyway. I'd rather be conservative than be pie in the sky and be disappointed. Found yeah. money is better than finding out you owe money. Yes. Um, so it, let's just crunch the numbers cause I've never crunched St. John numbers. So 800 times 12. So we got uh, 9,600 a year in cash flow. And then your mortgage is, is, uh, how much mortgage are you going to get on that? The 75,000? It depends on the appraisal. So there's obviously in that particular one, there's still some variation that may happen. Uh, anticipating a, um, approximately a 90,000, uh, valuation when it's done could be higher than that. Um, so the mortgage should be around 70,000, uh, which would get, you know, most of the funds back. So if the first mortgage, uh, I'm just actually pulling up my evaluation here for what we plan. I had the initial market value at 85 for my projection, which is again, like I said, a little bit more on the conservative side. Um, the mortgage would be 63,000 with a monthly payment of, uh, $300, 335 a month. Sounds so small compared to the stuff around here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is when people are concerned about interest rates uh, going up in a market like St. John, where your mortgage expense um, is such a small percentage uh, of your actual total expenses for the month, you're kind of, uh, you've got a natural defense against rising interest rates. The rest of the country will feel the effects of rising interest rates before uh, before I do in St. John. Yeah, that's definitely true. So let's just crunch the number based on 70,000. Say you get 70,000, you're into the property for five grand after your refi. I like to just say 3% of your mortgage gets paid down every year, which is approximate, but roughly true. So 0.03. So you're getting 2,100 a year in pay down 9,600 plus 2,100. And I'm not going to factor any appreciation because I don't think you're factoring it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 11,700 is your annual return on something you've got $5,000 into. Yes. So, <laughs> percentage wise, it's high. <laughs> so percentage wise, let's, let's just for, uh, for being dramatic here, um, divided by 5,000. Yeah. 234% a year. Yes. That beats what you were recommending to your clients, Brock. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's now the difference is though that is only placing $5,000. So yeah. where you have different, and it's obviously a very active strategy and involved in renovations and I've got team out there and so forth. But, um, you know, for people that have just sold their business or a second property and they're retiring or just coming to their commuted pension value, um, you know, if they have half a million or a million bucks, 
it's going to be very difficult to to actually um, install or place a million dollars. Yeah, efficiently, that would take so much work out there. Yeah, for those people. Um, what would you typically think would be the better strategy for somebody in that position? Um, well, it's, I mean, you can still do the same thing. You just need to buy more of them. Uh, you don't need to finance them as high. They're typically nine to 10 cap. So without the debt, you're, you're placing more funds and you're still getting a a solid return. Um, and there's, there's larger buildings as well. So, uh, closed on one in December for three and a half million. Um, and that one, uh, there are some environmental issues that the financing was a lower loan to value until um, we, we have that rectified. So, you know, that one we did end up placing a million and a half. Okay. So you can invest and get a good return on equity. You just kind of got to go bigger, especially yeah. in a market like that, or you can come to Toronto and with a half a million, you can buy half a property. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, no, a quarter, a third or a quarter of a property depends <laughs> on what single family home. Um, yeah, obviously a, a pretty big difference. How are you finding investing at a di- uh, distance and how did you overcome the obvious hurdles that are attached to that? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I've always invested from a diff- uh, distance, so it's hard to say uh, the opposite. I've always been a firm believer. I mean, I'm a banker by trade, so I should not be the person who's doing uh, the renovations. Other people can do it better than I can. Um, so I've been quite comfortable having other people do it because I know I'm not capable of it. Um, there's uh, different tactics that you use in different cities. In St. John, I do work with three different property management companies. Uh, and I find that does give me uh, a lot better idea of what's going on out there. Um, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. And depending on the property, um, you know, they match up. Uh, and I, I just try and pick a property that matches their skill set. And, um, you know, I, I found that's been one of the most effective ways is, is just uh, uh, having working with multiple teams rather than just one. Interesting. What was the, the hardest thing that happened for you investing at a distance? What, what's gone wrong that has been a challenge investing oh, at a yeah. difference? Lots of stuff. I mean, we had... Uh, I, I mean, there's endless things that happen, but um, one that comes to mind was uh, what we affectionately call the Poop Palace, and uh, the Poop Palace is a 15-unit apartment building that I purchased a couple of years ago, and the main sewer stack backed up, and we were renovating the one unit that happened to be the lowest point uh, in the building, so when the sewer stack backed up, all the poop came out of the bathtub the toilet and then flooded we had about two or three inches of sewer um throughout the entire apartment and uh, they were in it like the day before and they came back the next day so it's not like it had sat there for a long time but it was all 15 people's apartment buildings um from within the apartment building all their poop and shower water and uh there was carrots there was poop everywhere. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's an exact, it doesn't matter how bad it is. The process is the same where, uh, you know, the property manager dealt with it. So yeah. I, I was never in a situation that I had to actually go out and, uh, and deal with that myself. Um, so I don't know. 
you have to be in that situation though, right? Because if you needed to get to St. John right now, how long yeah. would it take you to get there? Well, I am literally in the southern part of California, so it is the furthest point on the continent that I could go to. Yeah. So it'd be about a five-hour flight to Toronto and then two hours from there. So it'd be seven hours plus connections. So I wouldn't be there for a day. But it's, I, you know, I, I, I sort of feel like it's the wrong question because there is, if something really bad was happening, I would not be helping things by being there. Correct. You know, I can deal with it with the phone and Google <laughs> and talking to all the people I've worked with for the last nine years. And I can be more effective and faster at getting a hold of the people that need to be there to, to deal with it. And uh, so I, I just, I really think it's the wrong thing to be thinking that if something goes wrong, you're going to go out there. Unless your skill trade is, uh, is you know, you're a carpenter or electrician or a plumber, or, um, you know, some sort of construction background. But for everyone else, you'll just get in the way. And you, I think you have no business being out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not uh, skilled trade by, <laughs> by trade. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't come from any of that. I have done some of the work myself, but I, like you, don't think that that's my best place. And yeah. if you're an investor, be an investor. Don't yeah. be a worker. You can do some, you know, some people flip a house or, or do it on their home. And I'm all for that. I think that can be a great way to add value and save tax and all that. Um, but, uh, but when it comes to doing this as a business, like you said, you can't, you can't rely on yourself. How yeah. often are you going out there just to scope out deals and what have you? I'm pro. It depends whether I'm acquiring new properties or not. Mm-hmm. But if I'm, if I'm acquiring new properties, it's as often as necessary. Um, it could be every couple of months, but um, on a normal basis, it's probably twice a year. So twice every year. six months, I'm I'm heading out there. But you're obviously buying properties more than that, so you have people looking at them for you. Absolutely, I've got um, you know the the teams in place. I mentioned I have the three property management companies, and um, uh, you know they they do the bulk of the work. They're probably the most important partners as far as what the rent would be. Um, and uh, beyond that, I mean, property inspectors, uh, you know, insurance, appraisers, property condition assessment, engineers for the larger ones, whether it's mechanical, electrical, um, structural, you know, it's whoever needs to be out there can. Um, and, uh, you know, but after you've, you've used them once or twice and used a couple different ones to compare, you know, which one's better. And, um, you build a bit of a relationship so they can tell you what you're want to know and, uh, not a problem to do all of that over the phone. That's great. Yeah. I've actually bought a few properties. I don't know the exact number without having seen them. I've firmed up on them without having seen them. One of them I didn't get into until two months after I owned it. And, uh, I know you've probably got way better stories than that, but, uh, (laughs) it, it pays to have people you can trust. Yeah you know, representing your interests. And that's not something that happens overnight. Yeah. I can tell you like, especially back when I was buying in Winnipeg, uh, cause that, that was where I, the first market that I started at. And when I was buying in Winnipeg, I'd go in and look at a property, but I'm not trained, especially structurally. Um, and so you have a lot of shifting, uh, with the clay and the freezing and so forth. So you have structural cracks in the foundation and, and whether they're horizontal or vertical. And I didn't know what I was looking at. So I could have been staring straight at a problem and not knowing what it is. I actually think it's more dangerous if you go and look at a property and think that for some reason you've now decided that it's okay. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, compared to having, I had, you know, structural uh, property inspection in, completed. I had city bylaw officers actually come out to take a look um, to make sure everything's fine. They know far more than any individual knows. And you looking at the property yourself is misleading, misguided, and, and I think leads to mistakes. And I understand the emotional draw to want to be involved and, and pretend that you're doing something. Um, but it's a, not the most effective use of your time. Interesting point. Now, you're obviously set up very well in New Brunswick. Do you see yourself just staying put or are you looking for a new market? Are you, are you, what, you know, are you looking at areas in the States now that you're down there? I am, but I've been waiting on my green card for two years. So, um, uh, as soon as my green card comes through, which should be in the next couple months, uh, but I've been saying that for the last 12 months. And uh, once that's through, I'll be looking in the States. And uh, I've already started. I've been looking more in Alabama and Georgia. Um, I will eventually start looking at more states down there as well. Oklahoma, Tennessee, uh, New Orleans. So sort of the southeast corner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I purchased one property in Atlanta, but uh, I have not been able to sort of move forward as, uh, as I had originally planned in the States, as I'm still waiting to get some of my uh, uh, personal immigration and tax stuff sorted. So it's smoother sailing. Now, I'm just curious, cause you don't need to be uh, you don't need to be a citizen or have a green card to buy real estate in the U S uh, is there a particular hang up there with that? Yeah. I, if it's personal. Don't yeah. You. So uh, no, you can, I mean, you can, of course you can do it, but uh, you can't do it as well. Okay. And so there's uh, tax reasons when you become non-residents, the various structures that you do. So if you're just talking about going out and buying one property, you could pretty much hold it in any structure you want. We bought the one in Atlanta. Actually, my wife purchased it uh, in her name. She's an American. Um, and it's easier to get the financing at a higher loan to value at a lower interest rate. Um, you know, so it's easier to get insurance, set up bank accounts. There's many different ways why it's just easier. So if you're talking about anything on scale, um, it's just easier if you, if you do have that set up. Um, but yes, of course you can still do it and you can either pay cash for the property or you can go to a B lender and get it at a slightly higher interest rate and slightly lower loan to value and the properties do still work um for me though when i'm looking at it and saying okay well i could go and accept that or there's a very viable alternative in canada and that's st john new brunswick like it's uh, which the numbers are actually better than any market that i've seen in the states so other than the fact that it's not sexy to to buy in new brunswick Um, it hands down, I'll compare the numbers there to any market that I've seen definitely in the rest of Canada. Um, but even all the ones I've, I've come across in the States as well. If you don't mind me asking, uh, what approximately is the total asset value of your New Brunswick real estate? Yeah. Uh, well, New Brunswick off the top of my head, eight mil, nine mil. So you got eight or nine mil into New Brunswick. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, when you're talking about, uh, hundred thousand dollar triplexes uh that's a lot of property (laughs) being a lot i know i realize that's only a few uh toronto ones but uh yeah no it's it's uh, 
And how are you, how are you able to arrange so many mortgages? Did you find you just had to go commercial or were you still able to do that on the residential side? No, when I was, um, I mean, so that would be more my background coming from the bank. And while I did investments before I did the financial planning, I did do um, some commercial lending and, and residential lending at the bank as well. So, um, there's different ways. You just have to keep pushing. And when it doesn't work one way, then you try it another way. And, uh, whether it's different corporations, different lenders, uh, different partners, uh, more recently I have gone commercial. Um, however, the one that I just bought on Friday that I mentioned, um, that's three units. So that's residential and, uh, I'll still get a mortgage. I'll have, I have a partner on that one. Um, so is it so, in his name, the partner's name? Um, no, that one's actually in a company that we, that okay. we both own. However, he is the, um, majority shareholder okay. and, um, majority of the, uh, majority shareholder. However, the voting shares are a little bit different. There's different classes of shares, so you can still have things, um, split up however you want them or however the, the project uh, is desired. So there's, um, you know, speak to a lawyer, speak to an accountant, and uh, there's, there's always ways to work around that where you can sort of keep the bank happy yeah. uh, and still divvy up the property and the project as you want it. That's super, super interesting because I've wondered about that for a while. So you're basically saying that you can satisfy the bank, you can... Uh, they only want the guarantee of say your partner. They don't want your personal guarantee, but you're still in some way a beneficial owner of that property. You just need a specific legal structure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's complicated. It would be a whole nother show. Um, but basically what it comes down to is, um, I, I have no problem giving my personal guarantee, but they know that I'm uh, leaving the country, I was supposed to be, from a residency standpoint, already gone last year. And because of that, they don't have the recourse to come after me as easily in the States as they would in Canada. So mm -hmm. my personal guarantee is not as valuable to them. So they, they actually don't want it that way. They would rather have someone else on it. Um, and then when you do that, as far as... Um, it, typically, you can't take all of the voting control um, so often you end up having three people involved, um, so that it isn't a 50, 50 tie and you have no way for resolution complaint or, uh, to, to resolve any disagreements that you may have. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's, there's always a way and, uh, uh, it, you can keep everyone happy The you know, the bank for the lending and the partner for their, their ownership and, and, uh, involvement and the tax man as well. So, uh, this is just topical because I've had quite a few American friends say, Oh, it must be different for you in Canada. It must be easier. And I laugh because I'm like, well, if you haven't checked, it is very regulated in Canada mm -hmm. from your standpoint. Now that you've been down there a bit, uh, I know your wife's American. Do you think there are options and I know you're banking on it, <laughs> obviously, literally, uh, that for an American to get countless mortgages residentially? Um, yes, the short answer is there's, yes, there's always options. It would be more difficult for an American to get the terms. So it'd be the, the reverse situation that I have going into the States. Their loan to value would not be as high, um, or they'd have to go to a B lender. Um, it, it can be done or they just partner up. I mean, technically 
I'm a U.S. resident. I'm still um, so again, you'd have to hold it in a corporation. Um, talking for for investing on American investing in Canada. In Canada. Yeah. What about American investing in America? I'm, I'm just trying to get a context oh. because I've had people say that they couldn't do what you know I've been able to do in building up a portfolio of properties, and certainly not what you've been able to do in getting so many. Can no, 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 that's crazy. You actually. So uh, there's a few things. One, yeah. the residential mortgages um, they are further ahead technology wise. So the banks communicate more. They're definitely, um, you know, the, they follow. They check everything. Um, you know, I think when we were purchasing the, uh, the property in Atlanta, my wife had like a $700 deposit from, I think it was like an insurance refund or something like that. And even though there was more than enough funds for the down payment, um, those $700 were not remotely required. They still, cause it was a deposit in the last three months. Um, they needed to verify where that was from. And uh, there's a whole bunch of quirks that are that are there. So I would say things are difficult to get a traditional mortgage um, in the states for residential rental properties. Um, however, their B lenders and their private equity and and the other options that they have are like 10, 20 times more plentiful than in Canada. You know, especially I'm in New Brunswick and Manitoba and private lending is not that easy because the markets are small in the States. You can find money everywhere. Like it's, it doesn't matter what market you're looking at. Um, if you have a decent business case, um, you know, there's a group out of Irving, California, um, that I've been speaking with that is more than happy to invest in Alabama and, uh, and Georgia um, because the numbers are there and uh, the numbers that they have to invest is more than I could ever use myself for, mm-hmm. for those states. So. so they would be coming in as equity partners with you? No, they're coming in as debt. Oh, coming know, in as debt. They're, yeah, they're coming in debt. And so, I mean, but I'll tell you what, if you wanted them to come in as equity, you could find the equity. Like there's just so many more people yeah and so much more options, it might not be structured the same. And that's where it's kind of different, like apples to apples. It's hard to answer that question, Mm -hmm. but you have, you know, dozens more options here than you would in Canada. Yeah. More options. That was kind of my take on it. I didn't realize that, that on the the micro scale, it actually is pretty tough. I've heard it. I just didn't, didn't know the the whole nuts and bolts to it. Um, I had a friend who, who bought like 10 properties in Phoenix back when it was way down. And then he did what was basically a portfolio loan commercially on the whole thing, got a good interest rate and then bought four more and did the same thing again. So that's a great way to do it. Yeah. So that's one, one strategy. If you do what you're proposing, what kind of rates do you figure you're going to get versus a bank rate? Well, okay. So, um, if you do use the B lender, you're looking for buy and hold that's five to 6%. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and typically those are five to 10 year terms. One of the things I like about the States, uh, is their 30 year mortgage. Cause you don't have interest rate risk, right? Once you've got it, you've got your interest rate for a 30 year term and it's, you know, 3.5 to 4%. If you're with, a uh, what in Canada, we call it charter a bank. Um, so it, there's limited on the residential on, on how far you can go with that, but mm-hmm. definitely for your first five to maximum 10, um, you know, you're looking at sub four fixed forever that you never have to worry about interest rate 
risk, you know. And then beyond that, yeah, sure. Uh, and commercial, you can get down there as well if you're if the project is strong enough. But even if it's not, and you're using a, a B lender like private equity group that's lending the funds to the project, it's still in that five to six percent range. So, so, so the interest rates are a touch higher, but down there, there's probably so many more markets that the cash flow is, is stronger, right? You're you're able to hit the yeah. one percent rule. It's um, stronger than most of the places in Canada. I would still come back to that if there was no obstacles or challenges to invest anywhere. I still think St. John, New Brunswick is. <laughs> Uh, has the numbers and, and I'm not just investing there because I'm in Canada. I'm investing there because it makes sense. That That's awesome. I actually, I don't know if I ever told you this back when we were doing stuff together um, as far as mortgages go, but I, uh, I bought a couple in, in Youngstown, Ohio for the cash flow. The cap rates were like 17, 18% on what I was yeah. buying. Crazy. And I think the market was, was great. There was one negative in that the population had been steadily declining for a really long time, but there was a lot of stuff around it. And I just kind of felt like there'll always be a certain, certain portion of that city that's going to stay. And, uh, it didn't go well for me, but I, I'd just be really curious to hear your thoughts on that market. Um, more, it didn't go well for me because I had a bad property manager who did some things with my money and, and, uh, wrecked my properties. But, uh, that's one of those risks of, of, of doing at a distance. And this is why I've oft, I've often told people when you're getting started, don't do it at a distance, which your advice goes completely against and it works for you, which is what I love about this, right? We all have our own perspective, um, yeah. as to what's going to work and, and what you need to do to make it work. It's yeah. just a different approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sorry, my comment on Ohio. Yeah. What would your, uh, what would your comment be? It's, you know, some of the numbers are great. I mean, I think the total return, the market's fairly efficient at, you know, calculating with the information they have at hand. So if it has a 17 or 18% cap rate, it's basically telling you you're going to make the money through cash flow, not appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might only have a five to 10 year time frame before that property um, literally has no value because it's dilapidated unless you reinvest in it, which you probably won't do, (laughs) which, and, and maybe you wouldn't. Right. And so that's fine, but the return is still there. Mm -hmm. What I like about that is I feel that, um, investing more as a contrarian in those markets, things can change. Windsor would be a good example in 2008 and nine. I actually looked at Windsor the same time I was looking at St. John in 2010. And I decided to go with St. John uh, which was stronger than Windsor. Windsor had vacancy rates of 14%. Um, and and people were all saying not to invest in it. And I listened. And as an alternative, you know, vacancy now is like 3%. And yeah. um, all those properties have sort of turned around. And they don't always turn around. But you have more upside. When you're buying something that is strong, that has low vacancy, mm-hmm. strong population growth, um, good, good economics, um, it could keep getting better. That's still a possibility, but you're paying a premium to get that strength. And if that ever turns, you're in a lot of trouble. Whereas at least if you're buying in an area that's already weak, you're not paying the premium. Yeah. So I view both of them five years, 10 years from now, who knows where they are. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and you never know, it could turn around, it could stabilize, it could grow. Um, I would just rather, not pay a premium to get into those those markets to start with and and hope that 10 years 15 years from now things have changed 
Makes sense. So uh, wanted to get to some wrap up questions. What's one thing that you would suggest the most important thing you would suggest to somebody who wants to get started in this type of investing? Just do it, you know, like uh, get started and um, don't bite off more than you can choose. Start small. Now, the reason why New Brunswick was good, that's why I picked Winnipeg when I started as well. Um, single family homes are great and duplexes are great. Everyone loves multifamilies, but you don't have to jump right into them. Um, if you're comfortable, you can, that's fine too. But, but I think you can cut your teeth and, uh, sort of learn your lessons in smaller markets before you take on larger projects because you will make mistakes. Um, but the important is that thing is that you do them. When I first started, uh, I remember in the course, there was someone I, I took the course with, and we both went to Winnipeg to look at properties. And um, I bought one that trip, and she continued to, uh, you know, look at the market, make offers, low try and get that good deal. And that first year, I bought 10 or 11 properties. She got her first one a year later, um, but the average price in Winnipeg had gone up 10%. And she got a discount, so she was basically paying the same price I was when I first started. So um, probably the, the best advice I could give is to just get started, uh, start small, and but start. Okay. And would you say that there's like a specific rule to follow? Like, would you say 1% rule is a, is a minimum as far as your philosophy goes? Uh, I mean, for my philosophy, yes. Um, I mean, I think the key is not even so much the 1%, but just that it cash flows. So if you're conservative and you've included every expense you can possibly think of, and it's still cash flows, whether that's 1% or 2% uh, or three quarters of a percent, you know, that's fine. But just cash flow is important, um, especially when you start. But I do think that, um, sometimes we get too hung up on cash flow as well. There's a limit. You want to make sure that you've got everything covered, but in the end, um, you probably just want more assets under management, you know? Okay. So, and, uh, what's one thing that you would tell people not to do? Good question. I mean, there's, I, I'm just thinking of some of the mistakes that I've made over time and, but it would be tough to say not to do them because I don't feel they were, parent when I, uh, when I started. And, uh, so maybe one thing not to do is to live and die just by your numbers and your analysis. Um, you know, examples, those Mississauga properties were the best properties that I bought and they did not cash flow when I bought them. Um, other properties that have had tremendous cash flow when I bought them have had problems that I could not predict. Um, and uh, like that poop palace one, yep. um, where we've had some vacancies and they're still constructing and it's negative cash flow, uh, and in the end, insurance will cover it. But uh, you know, at the moment, it doesn't look like the greatest property. Um, so I think sometimes we just get too hung up on our analysis. You know, do as much as you can and and try and make good decisions, but still be prepared that it's not gonna go the way that you are and are the way that you think it will always and um, still do it, but be prepared. Yeah, that's, that's great. So I have another question for you just more on a personal level. Um, obviously with what you've done, there's more than enough cash flow in that portfolio for you to just go to Fiji or something and uh, yeah. never work again. So what's in it for you at this point? Why, why keep pushing? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I think it's kind of a, uh, another 
um, not a mistruth, but people assume that the cash flow is is uh, is great when you get more properties. Um, but there is always a list of things that you could spend that money on to improve the portfolio, mm-hmm. um, especially with older properties. Or I'd go and buy more properties, and and so I mean, I guess theoretically, I could stop and move to Fiji, but. Um, I do find the cash flow is lumpy. Um, it's, it's good at times. And then there's projects and they all tend to come at the same time. So then there's no cash flow in those months. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, you know, you've got to have that balance of cash flow and appreciation or mortgage buy down, et cetera. Um, and I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's a get rich slowly scheme. It's not a get rich quick. Um, and what drives me, I mean, it's, it's just still not there. I, I, I think if you have the ability to do something, um, and a skill set that you can do it fairly well, um, that you should keep doing it, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's not something I plan on stopping anytime soon. In fact, I, I want to ramp it up, ramp it up a bit. So you're enjoying yourself is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that's great. You got to do what you love. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up or is that, uh, covering it? Go flames go, I guess. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. They're in the playoffs. Go season, right. last night, but, uh, we'll see. Nice. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks Brock. This was like just uh 50 minutes of uh, pure gold. So I know, um, our, our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of this and I certainly did been, been meaning to catch up with you and this is a good way of doing it. So no, it's great to talk. Yeah, man. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. So, um, if anyone wants to get a hold of Brock, he's not quite set up. He's going to have something coming in the future. So I'll have you on again, Brock, and, sure. and we can share, share some contact. Um, and, uh, we'll go from there. Okay. So thanks again, Brock. And, uh, just before, actually I wanted to do the, uh, the question. So favorite book and it could be real estate based or not. Oh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, real estate based, probably rich dad, poor dad. Okay. And, uh, yeah. and beyond that, I mean, I, most of the books that I follow are, are more investing in stocks. So reminiscences of a stock operator by Jesse Livermore or, uh, getting started in technical analysis, uh, by Jack Swagger or, uh, some of those, there's a lot of crossover between stocks and real estate. And, uh, I think we can all learn as real estate investors by paying more attention to, good strong uh, stock investors as well very interesting what is your favorite hobby to do golf golf do yeah. i guess golf. you can golf a lot more now that you're uh you're in you know it's it's funny the first year i was down here i really didn't play that much more but this year i've been getting out and uh and it's it's been really nice in january to see all my friends facebook pictures of snow and how cold and the polar vortex while i'm out on the golf course Um, yeah a little jealous right now it's not so nice here right now (laughs) a little rainy yeah i don't uh, know what rain is down here yeah you don't get much of it (laughs) that's one of the interesting things about things about california if uh, if somebody threw up on the sidewalk three weeks ago it's still there (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's probably true yeah you gotta get a little street washer um (laughs) oh and i had uh had one more for you oh yeah one thing that people don't most people don't know about you I don't know. I'm left-handed. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, that's great. Okay. Yeah. I like to do those just get the, uh, to get you th- kind of thinking outside the box a little bit, share some things people don't know. So anyways, okay. Thanks a lot, Brock. Really appreciate it. And we'll have to connect again soon. Great. Thanks. Talk to you soon.
Just a quick wrap up. Obviously, that was an amazing episode with Brock. His approach to picking markets is unlike anything I've seen from anyone else who's been on the show. And the way he looks for high vacancy and the way he sees opportunities in that really has to get you thinking that there may be unseen opportunities in your market right now. There may be opportunities that you don't think are opportunities, but no one else thinks they're opportunities either. So it might be a good idea to take a look around and and look for some hidden value in your area, something that other people might not be putting enough value on. Once again, please share this podcast with somebody else who can benefit from it. If you haven't already, please take a moment to review it. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at the Andrew Hines and Hines is spelled H-I-N-E-S. And that's on either Facebook or Instagram. Uh, You can reach me on either platform. Best way to get in touch. And thank you very much for listening. I'll see you guys on the next one.